Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we continue uh, in our series through the book of Matthew called The Good News Kingdom. As you're turning there, I do want to say Happy Father's Day to all of you. Uh, I guess my kids did a really nice thing for me. They're gone. So I get to do whatever I want today. And uh, no, I miss my kids. I think they're watching online from New York. So hello and I will be up there tomorrow and headed up to the Adirondacks, the Garden of Eden in this cursed world um, for the next few days. So really excited to be away, but excited to continue in Matthew chapter 5. When we, last week we did the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, and we began talking about this first section called the Beatitudes. And as we begin this sermon this morning, I want to actually take you to another passage of Scripture that's on the screen for you that says this, that Paul says in 2 Corinthians And Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This verse has been tremendously influential in my own life. And in this verse, we see that because of the death of Jesus, we no longer live for us, but we live for him. But what does it actually mean to live for Jesus? I think we come up with lots of answers of what it means to have a life that says this life is for Jesus. And what I want to share with you this morning is that when Jesus is teaching his disciples up on the mountainside and the crowds come around him and gather around Jesus, he is actually going to describe for us what life looks like if you're going to follow Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen these old movies when one kingship ends and a new king comes into power. Anyone think of any of these movies? Um, I have a TV show. It's really cheesy, but I can't get over it. It's called Merlin, and um, I'm fascinated by all of those, like, Arthur and Merlin-type stories. And uh, it's interesting just to see when... uh, Arthur comes up and he's trying to institute a new way of living, a new way, a new ethic, a new way of being in, in uh, what's the name of this village, the kingdom? Camelot. Oh my goodness, you can tell how much I love it, right? Um, it's going to be a good morning. It's going to be a good morning. In Camelot. And what I want you to think about is this, that when Jesus comes on the scene, as we saw in Matthew chapter 4, that he is pronouncing and proclaiming and teaching everyone about the good news of the kingdom of God, what he is actually saying is that there is a new king who is coming to take over. And when a new king comes to take over, he is going to institute his ethic, his way of being in his kingdom. And so Jesus after he got baptized, was then out pronouncing and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Now he's sitting down on a mountainside teaching his disciples what it looks like to live for Jesus. And in today's passage, we're going to see that what it means to follow Jesus, to live for Jesus, to have a blessed life, is to live for Jesus in three specific ways. Number one, we need to understand that to live for Jesus means to be merciful. Number two, it means to be pure. And number three, it means to be a peacemaker. Now, I asked you at the beginning what it means to live for Jesus. I wonder how many of those answers came to your minds. 
being merciful, pure, and being a peacemaker. Probably the closest one most of us when we think about what it means to live for Jesus is obedience, right? Here's my list of rules. I do this and I stay away from that. And of course, that's part of it. But there's way more. There's a lot more to the ethic of Jesus, to the commands of Jesus, to, to the rule that he is instituting in his world. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. So Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Jesus says this, <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus by the Spirit, asking that you will allow your Spirit of God to do His work as we open the Word of God and to nurture and to create and sustain our faith as we hear from you. So speak to us, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I had a chart I'm going to just put on the screen for you again about how to break up these Beatitudes. And we saw last week that the first section, the first four Beatitudes talk what it means to depend on God and to have a blessed life, to have a life that is the presence of God being permeated in your life that fills your life with love and peace and joy. To have that blessed life requires that you depend upon Him. This morning, I want to look at this middle section of another way that a blessed life comes, and it comes to those who actually live for Jesus. And so what we're going to see is that when you live this way, there's going to be great trouble and great trial. There's going to be a response from the world when we live this way. And Jesus says, in the midst of all of it, for those who will depend upon me and live for me, despite all of the outside opposition, there will be blessing upon your life. So the real question is, as we begin, is what do you look to to promote and to bring blessing upon your life? Jesus says, here's how it comes. And we're going to look at uh, five Beatitudes this morning. And in some ways, each one of these could be their own sermon, right? And we'd be in the Sermon on the Mount for 150 years if we did it verse by verse. And I was asking God this week, like, how do I teach so many Beatitudes? Like last week, I was trying to do four, and remember, I only got through two, right? And now I'm going to try to do five this week. We'll, we'll see. But one of the things I want, I asked God to do, and he met with me, and I want to ask you is that as we go through this, would, would you just ask God to highlight one of these? One of the five that we talk about this morning to really have the Spirit of God press upon you what this particular beatitude means for you. So let's look at the first beatitude of what those who have the blessed life who live for God, and that is the fifth one. It says, blessed are the merciful. And we see this in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So what is mercy? Mercy. And how does mercy differ from grace? 
See, when I think of mercy and grace, I think they are two different expressions of love. And when we think about grace, grace is a loving response to someone who doesn't deserve something. So grace is is a response to someone who is undeserving. But mercy is also a response. It's a response of love to someone who is in misery, who is in a place of helplessness, one who has no hope. And so when God showers grace upon us, it's because we don't deserve, we're undeserving. But when God showers mercy upon us, it's because we are helpless. We're alone. We, we are in misery. So we could say it this way, that grace answers to the undeserving and mercy answers to the miserable. So Jesus here is commanding that the blessed life comes to those who actually treat people in love in the midst of their misery, in the midst of their helplessness. I think mercy, for the sake of argument this morning, because that's what I'm talking about, but I think mercy is much harder to show to people than grace. Grace, you can look at someone and say, yeah, you are undeserving, but I can come and fill you and meet you and give you everything you need. But help, mercy has the idea of like coming to someone who is helpless. And you have to come to that person in the midst of all of their misery and all of their struggle and enter into their misery. We don't like to be merciful to people because in being merciful, you actually have to enter into their helplessness. You have to enter into their state of being. And Jesus states that the merciful one is the one who will actually come and meet you in a place of misery. And here's the good news. Is that Jesus met you in your misery. Jesus met you in your place of helplessness. And so the beautiful thing about this command of Jesus to be merciful is that it isn't something that he is asking us to do that he himself has never done. In fact, it's something that has been done to us that then flows out of us. And Jesus says those who live this way will be the ones who will be shown mercy. Now, some people try to interpret these verses in a sense that we're going to call legalistically as in a self-righteousness or a works-based way of looking, as if to say that the only way to obtain mercy from God is to show mercy to others. So it's almost like this, this debtor's ethic, that if I show mercy to you, then God is required to do what? Show mercy to me. So if I don't show mercy to you, I'm not going to get mercy from God. And so I want to get mercy from God, so I have to go do that. But I want to say that Jesus here is not commanding a legalistic mercy. He's actually commanding a gospel mercy. What's the difference between a legalistic mercy and a gospel mercy? It's this. The one who is not merciful is so inevitably, so unaware of his own state, of his own soul, of his own person, that in a sense he thinks he doesn't need mercy. You cannot picture yourself as miserable and wretched and helpless. And if you don't picture yourself as miserable and wretched and helpless, how can God actually help you? You cannot picture yourself this way, so God cannot come and meet you. We often become like the the, the Pharisee in the temple 
who was praying to Jesus, praying to God, I thank God that I'm not like who? The tax collector and the harlot and the prostitute. Because he didn't think he needed mercy. But the passage in Luke 18 goes on to say, who's the one who actually receives mercy from God? The one who recognizes their wretched, helpless states. And it's a gospel mercy because once you have experienced the mercy of God upon your life, it will be reciprocated out to other people. In the sense that it is the degree to which you have actually experienced the mercy of God will be the degree to which you show mercy to others. And so if you show mercy to others, it is a response to the mercy that God has given to you. And as you go out to be merciful, God is going to come and show His mercy to you. So the person who experiences this deep mercy reflects what we talked a little bit about last week, that they are poor in spirit, they are humble, they recognize their helplessness, they recognize their, in, their inability to do anything on their own. And so the question I have for you as we end this particular one is, who is God calling you to be merciful towards? Who is in a state of life that you know of that you could actually reach out to be merciful, to show love to. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's someone in your MC. Maybe it's someone at your work who is in this desperate situation that they need a merciful response from you to come to them, to meet them in love. And the promise is this. The reward is this, is that as you go and meet them in that mercy, God is going to meet you in that mercy. That's the beautiful part about this reality is that when you come to help someone who's in that state of, of wretchedness and helplessness and unable to do anything on their own and you come and meet their need and love them and serve them, that's when God actually meets with you. And God meets you there. And then in the meeting of God there in the midst of helping someone who's merciful, there is blessing. You know, like sometimes we struggle with motivation, but when you actually do this act, you go and meet someone, doesn't it make you, in a sense, feel good? And as part of that could be a wrong motivation, right? Like, look at me, I'm great, you know, it makes me feel better. But I'm just saying, like, in a very real way, the Spirit of God, when you meet someone somewhere, the Spirit of God shows up and brings blessing to you. And so many of us miss this blessing in our everyday life. Why? Because we want God's blessing in our life. We want God to show us His grace and His mercy. But we're not willing to actually go out and be in the spaces where God is going to meet us. Like, this is just sometimes crazy to me in my own life. I want God to meet me. I want God to bless me. I want God to show mercy to me. And yet, I don't position myself to be in the spaces or the places where God is actually going to meet and so I live this frustrated Christian life. God is nowhere. I can never feel God. God is absent. Where is God? And sometimes that is a reality of the Christian life. But in the midst of that, why wouldn't you position yourself to be in a space or a place where God promises to show you mercy? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. 
In biblical imagery, the heart is the center of the entire being. We call it the seat of our affections. We call it everything that we do, Proverbs 4 says, comes and flows out of our desires, our hearts. Okay, and so this is where we get this weird phrase, invite Jesus into your what? Heart. Like, you know, this is just dumb, but as a little kid, I thought I had a little door, opened it, he came in, it closed, and now he lives right here, right? Like, that's not what that phrase means. The idea is to invite Jesus into the center of your being, to allow him to control and to dominate that reality. On the next slide, Jesus describes the natural heart later on in the book of Matthew. He says this, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So when you sin in any of these ways or any other way, guess where that sin originated? In your own heart. And why is that so important? Because the psalmist says this in Psalm 24, who will ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who will actually be able to stand in the presence of God? And the author of the psalm says, he who has clean hands and a what? Pure hearts. The one who has not lifted his soul up to emptiness, to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. So what we see in this passage is that a natural heart, as we know in the book of Jeremiah, the heart is deceptively wicked. Who can know it? But the kingdom of God, when it comes upon an individual, actually transforms that heart out of a natural heart into what we're going to call a supernatural heart. And a supernatural heart, instead of one being filled with evil and murder and adultery and sexual morality and theft and false testimony and slander, a pure heart is one that is filled with goodness and love and faithfulness and purity and honesty and truth and encouragement. And Jesus says, the blessed life does not come through doing whatever you want according to your natural heart. The blessed life will always come through a pure heart. Now let's ask this question. Why does the pure heart actually lead to blessing? I don't know how many of these evil desires in Matthew 15 actually resonate with you. But don't sometimes you just want to like, you know, if I could just go do blank, my life would be a lot better. Right? How many of you have thought that today? <laughs> you know, maybe it's, you just had, I mean, I've had many of these days where I'm like, my kids, see you later. I'm out. I'm done. Like, not be faithful. To hate my kids. Or how many times you just want to go, I don't know, do whatever you want to do, of, you know, get drunk or, or commit adultery or be immure, impure. Like, it just seems like if I could just go get a new iPad, my life would be better. I'd stop coming out with new ones. My heart would be cured. Right? But that's not the reality. The reality is this, is that why is the pure life the blessed life? You ever thought about that? What is it about goodness and love and faithfulness and purity and honesty and truth and encouragement? What is it about those realities that brings blessing to your life? 
<clears throat> See, God didn't just make a bunch of rules and say this is the set standard of which everyone's going to follow. What Jesus' ethic does, and if you're not a Christian in this room, I would encourage you to think through this, is that Christianity is unique in the sense that the ethic that it offers, when it is followed and adhered to, promotes the greatest flourishing of a society or community that could actually exist. What type of community would exist if we were filled with adultery? What if we were all committing adultery in this room? What type of love and unity would there be? Wouldn't it destroy our ability to have fellowship and genuine relationship with one another? What if you were stealing from people all the time? What if you were actually lying what if you're slandering people? See, anytime you commit one of these evil acts out of our hearts, you are actually bringing damage to other people and hindering relationship that keeps people from actually experiencing wholeness. So Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Because when you live out of this purity of heart, there is actually wholeness and flourishing that can actually be created among a group of people. And know this, in one sense, the demands of the kingdom never change. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says this, Be ye perfect as... Uh, I memorized it in the King James. <laughs> Be ye perfect, okay? I'm going to read the NIV. It says, Be perfect, therefore as your Father, Heavenly Father, is perfect. So what's the standard? Perfection, right? How many of you are good at that, holding that standard up? And just so we're clear on this, like, hypocrites are not people who don't live up to their ideals. Because if that was what a hypocrite was, everyone's a hypocrite, right? A hypocrite is someone who doesn't acknowledge that they don't live up to their ideals. And Jesus is going to warn about hypocrisy later on in this Sermon on the Mount. But the reality is that when we talk about these purity of heart, it's like, that seems like a standard I could never attain to. And Jesus knows that. But he says, in this life, until the fullness and the consummation of the kingdom of God comes, this is the standard that we seek to live by. Knowing that when you fall short of that standard, what is there? There's forgiveness, isn't there? This is why Jesus had to die. He had to die to actually allow you the space to keep striving for the ethic of the kingdom, to live under this new king's reign, knowing that when we fail, we don't have to pay for it, we don't have to work to overcome it, we are forgiven. And when that penny drops, when, when the grace of God drops in your heart that way, that all of your sins today have already been forgiven, tomorrow all the sins that you will commit have been forgiven, when the grace of God drops deep into your heart, it is, never becomes a license to do whatever you want. You know, like people say, if you keep preaching grace, people are going to do whatever they want. And I want to say you don't know what grace is. Grace is the fact that Jesus put himself on a tree for you to cover all of your sins. And when that penny drops, it calls us to go to the standard, not run away. 
And the beauty of this, of this beatitude is that those who actually live this way, the promise is that they will see God. If you do an Old Testament study, and I'm just going to take one particular passage, we know that no one could see God and live, right? Because His, his majesty, and His glory, and His essence of who He is is just so beautiful and so magnificent that it, any human, any sinful human cannot endure such glory and such majesty. And so Moses on the mountain says, well, just show me a glimpse. And the back of God covers, comes across the mountain and it blinds Moses. The promise throughout the Old Testament and, and what Jesus is promising here is that there's one day that you will actually be able to behold God with your very eyes. And in that moment, when God shows up and you are in the presence of God, the love of God is going to so fill you that your life is going to be filled with joy. This is like if you whatever close relationships that you have, someone who deeply loves you and, and you are in good standing with that person and you go and be with that person, how does your life actually feel? Say you've been away from your spouse for three weeks and you come back and they're finally there and you haven't fought yet. But when they show up, what does your life feel like? Aren't you just glad they're back? Isn't there just happiness and joy because that love that is being reciprocated to you and you get to reciprocate to them, there's like flourishing in that? And imagine that times a million with God showing up that those who are pure in heart are going to be rewarded to one day actually see God face to face. That's quite a reward, isn't it? Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called the children of God. This blessing does not hold out a blessing for those who are peaceful, nor for those who yearn for peace to be in their lives. But it actually is a reward for those who are peacemakers. And thankfully, everyone can be a peacemaker, not just a nine on the Enneagram. A peacemaker is different than someone who's just wanting peace. What is a peacemaker? A peacemaker is someone who is in their mind and in their life is primarily seeking to bring healing to divisions in the community. The primary thrust of a peacemaker is reconciliation and flourishing among people in the church and outside the church. And knowing that peace in the Bible is not just the absence of hostility, but the presence of flourishing. You know, like Nate mentioned this book that I read like 10 years ago with my wife, uh, When Sinners Say I Do. And one of the things that popped out to me like I had, I mean, of course, I should have seen it a long time before that. But God used that book to open up this one reality to me. That I would ask for forgiveness from my wife. Why? Just so we could move on. Does that make sense? Like, there was still division there. There was still angst in my heart. But I thought if I could just go to her and be like, you know what, I'm sorry. I'll be the bigger man, the bigger person. And could begin to ease that tension. Things would just get better. Does that make sense? 
Any of you like me in your relationships with people? That's not being a peacemaker. Because why did I really do that peace with my wife? Who, whose benefit was it? Mine. It was very self-centered. I just hated the tension, so I'd just be like, all right, all right I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll never, do, never, never do that again. Right? And so to be a peacemaker is not just about lessening the tensions that exist between people. But it's also finding ways to make relationships thrive, to make people prosper with one another. It, it is this idea of wholeness and flourishing. And so, blessed are the peacemakers. When you enter into a heated debate between people, or maybe you're in the debate, the one who can stay calm and respectfully listen to each person's viewpoint with fairness and courtesy. Don't we look at those people as the ones who are spiritual? And yet Jesus says every one of us, when we live this way, is commanding us to be people who are peacemakers. And so the blessing, the reward for those who are peacemakers is that they will be sons of God. They will be children of God. Just quickly, um, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, uh, Paul says that all who belong to Jesus are sons of God. Okay? And, and some people, in a sense, get a little upset about that because why doesn't he say sons and daughters of God? Does that make sense? Like this, this gender-neutral reality? Like, why doesn't Paul say, you'll be a daughter of God? And I don't think Paul is being a chauvinist. I think he's just building on the, the culture of his day. Who in the family, in the family unit, uniquely enjoyed all of the privileges, primarily the privileges and the responsibilities of the families? Who enjoyed those responsibilities and privileges? Wasn't it the firstborn son? I mean, you just read through the Old Testament story, and the, the blessing is always passed on to the firstborn son who steals it or gets it stolen or sells it. And, but the reality is that the firstborn son is the one who enjoys all the rights and privileges of that family. And in the same way, when Paul says, all of those who are in Christ Jesus are become sons of God. He's not being a chauvinist. He's actually saying this, in that, in that reality, you get to enjoy, man, woman, or child, all the rights and privileges that belong to God and His kingdom. Which means there are no second-class citizens. All of us are sons of God. All of us have all the rights and privileges that belong to Him. And so when we live a life of peacemaking, of seeking wholeness in relationships with ourselves among people, the reward is that you get all the privileges of the kingdom of God. So what is it like to live for Jesus? It means that you are merciful. You meet people in their mercy, in their helplessness, sorry, in their helplessness, and God meets you there. And, and then you are pure in your heart for the sake of bringing flourishing and blessing to all people. And you're a peacemaker. 
But interesting, when you live this way, the outside world is going to actually oppose you. So the final two Beatitudes kind of go together. They say in verse 10, the eighth Beatitude is, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it goes on in, in, in verse 11 to say, Blessed are the ones, blessed are you when you are insulted and persecuted and are falsely accused of all kinds of things. The final set of Beatitudes speaks to this relationship between the world and the follower of Jesus. The peacemaker, the pure in heart, the merciful, you should not expect an easy, comfortable life. You should be expecting a life filled, as the Beatitudes say here, a life filled with persecution and insults and uh, people saying evil things about you. When we follow the will of God, when we follow God's ways and live as citizens of the kingdom, we will come in conflict with another king. We'll come in conflict with the king and his people. And Jesus speaks to this throughout his gospels, and specifically in John chapter 16, he tells his disciples, I've told you these things so that in you, you may have peace in me. Because in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, church, Jesus has overcome the world. Now, notice what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of what? Not obnoxiousness. Okay, I think we need to make a very clear distinction here. The gospel is offensive, is it not? Paul tells us it is. Does that mean the messenger has to be obnoxious and offensive? No, we're not blessed when we act like an idiot in the name of Jesus. We're not blessed or persecuted because we are promoting some religious political cause. We are, you're not blessed for being a Democrat or blessed for being a Republican in the name of Jesus. You are blessed when you are persecuted because of righteousness. Not any other reason. Righteousness is doing what is right before God on the earth. It involves doing justice. It involves loving your neighbor. It involves a lot of red and blue ideals. But the reality is that we are blessed when we live a life of righteousness. When, Jesus will teach us in the Lord's Prayer, when we live on earth as it is where? In heaven. When we live that way, and the problem is, is that we confuse all of our ideologies with the way of righteousness. But when we actually live according to the righteous standard of the kingdom of God, you will be persecuted, but take heart. Your reward is the kingdom of heaven. You're like, I just saw that reward last week. Right, in verse 3, the very first beatitude says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Just as a person must be poor in spirit to enter the kingdom of God, those who are persecuted because of righteousness will be able to enter into the kingdom as well. Why is Jesus, Matthew, recording two rewards 
Because it's kind of at the beginning and at the end of the Beatitudes sections that all of this is about being a citizen of the kingdom of God. So church, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecute the prophets, they are going to persecute you. I want to close with a passage that's familiar to us. But I would just, I asked this question in my own life this week as well, and I want to ask it as you as we close, is like, are, are you being persecuted? Are people insulting you? Are people slandering you? And I wonder sometimes, I know we're not getting thrown in prison, right? Okay. But I wonder sometimes if we are not being insulted and slandered because we are not actually living the Beatitudes. First Peter tells us in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, let everyone ask you who has, of why you have this hope in you. So he says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You know, like, I, I wonder this about my own life. Like, why aren't people coming and asking me why, why I have this hope? It's interesting, Peter almost has like a, a reverse evangelism technique that we have. We're normally like the offensive evangelism technique, right? Which is great. Paul was that way. He went on the offensive in a sense and began to just proclaim the good news of Jesus. But Peter says there's almost like a defensive evangelism technique as well. The defensive is what? You live a certain way of life and guess what's going to happen? People will begin to ask you why you live that way. So I would love for us as a church to close in prayer this morning together, just asking God that we would live this life of blessing, Beatitudes, in such a way that this week, or the next couple weeks over the summer, people will be asking us, why do we live this way? Why are we merciful? Why are we peacemakers? Why are we pure? Because we say that's where the blessing is. That's where the blessed life is. And I believe as we live that life together, the witness even becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And so let's pray. Jesus, help us to live this life of blessing, of living for you, of being people who are merciful and peacemaking and, and pure in our hearts. Because in that, you meet us, you fill us with your life and your love. And we bring blessing not only to ourselves, but we want to bring blessing to those who do not know you, who still live in the darkness. And so may the light of Jesus that is in our life, that the Spirit creates in us of, of being people who live in these ways, would, would shine through the darkness and allow us to have opportunities to tell people this week, this summer, why we live this way. We ask these things in Jesus' name.